there's a lot we're going to be talking about. We're actually going to possibly do some excursus, specifically dealing with the issue of same-sex attraction, because same-sex behavior, because it is such a big issue in our culture right now in a way that it wasn't even for me 10 years ago or as a young person growing up. What my daughter's experiencing, what my children are, are, are faced with, what your children are faced with is so different than so many of us. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to go in there. We're going to look at what God's word really says about this, what the Lord Jesus himself really said about this. People, in some ways, Jesus didn't speak specifically about the issue of same-sex attraction, but in another way, he really, really does. Um, we're going to look at how that happens. Um, you're, you're not going to be surprised at what you're going to be preached in terms of our church. We, we believe the Bible is God's word, and we, we will be explaining how we think that God's perspective on sexual morality is what we would all be classified as traditional. And, and we're going to talk about that's not just traditional. It's, it's God's holy call on our lives and why. Um, and not just same-sex issues, but issues of adultery as issues of of illicit images, those things are going to be things that we're going to just at least touch on, if not in depth and brief. We're also going to be looking at our own hearts. Where is there um, an attitude of self-righteousness that um, the world might call homophobia? Where is there an attitude of looking selectively at certain sins and giving ourselves a pass on others? We want our hearts to be ready to receive people who struggle with sin of all kind. Uh, we want our hearts to love one another as we all struggle with these sins still, as people who are still in process. And so we're going to look at what's wrong outside our church, and we're going to look at what's wrong inside our church and our own hearts as well. As we, And we're going to see God's gracious, wonderful solution to all that. But as I was working on this week and planning on this week and d- different projects and things that came up, um, I didn't have the time to just get into this as, as big as I want to right now. So what I did feel burdened to was to come back to a message uh, from many, many years ago that really kind of undergirds what's going on in our culture when it comes to issues of morality across the board, issues of belief across the board. And that is this issue that of relativism versus truth, relativism, relativism versus truth, that we live in a world that is really losing its moorings on a fundamental level. And that's a great challenge and it's a great opportunity. Um, a, a lot of theologians are, I think, rightly saying that, that we're really in a post-Christian world. And I, I, I think there are some ways that that has really always been true in one sense. Uh, but in, in other ways, we're, we're seeing it, we're feeling it more than we ever have before as a church. Um, and what I want to talk about today is this this issue called relativism and the the, the fallacious nature of it, the the really the, the lie that it is, and how we need to be savvy about it, how we need to be shrewd as serpents, as the Bible says, but also innocent as doves. So the message this morning isn't going to specifically deal with sexual morality, but it's going to touch on the deeper issue behind all these things, which is the issue of truth. Or non-truth. And that undergirds all our choices in, in terms of ethics and morality. So hopefully we'll be able to, at touch points, talk about how this really is relevant to where we're going in First Corinthians. But the message is called the fallacy of relativism, the fallacy of pluralistic relativism. In, in 2008, Tim Keller wrote a book called Reason for God, and he quoted the following people who said this, how could there be just one true faith, asked Blair, a 24-year-old woman living in Manhattan. It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and to try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous, added Jeff, 
a 20-something British man also living in New York City. Did you hear that? Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. I, I think the world is really, really buying into that more and more progressively, especially in the West. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. Now that's some, you know, 24-year-old guy, British guy living in New York City. But folks, that is, that is more than a 24-year-old British guy living in New York City. That is really a, the spirit more and more of our age and our culture. And we have to recognize that and be prepared to deal with it. This is relativism. This is the idea that, that all truths are equally valid for each person who holds them. And therefore, all religious truths are equally valid. Relativism says it's wrong and arrogant to think your version of truth is somehow better than someone else's. Relativism is permeating our culture. And an amazing example, a few years ago, Nashville Vanderbilt University, um, Nashville's Vanderbilt University outlawed any religious campus ministries that did not allow members of other religions to be members of their campus ministries, including allowing them to run for the leadership of those ministries. They outlawed any Christian ministry that wouldn't say to a Muslim person, you can be president of our ministry. Uh, that's a true thing that's happened in, at Vanderbilt. Relativism seeks to avoid narrow ways of thinking that, that breed arrogance and hatred. That's, that's an, a nice thing about it. And provide a more inclusive, humble alternative. Those are some of the believed nice attitudes about relativism. But the problem of relativism is that it's transparently narrow itself. If you say no religion is better than another, you've just made a claim that everyone who believes differently than you is wrong. You get it? If you say no religion is better than another, no truth is, is, is more true than another, or more truth is, no truth is, is exclusively true, then you've made an exclusive claim that everyone who disbelieves is wrong. And so it's a logical fallacy. Like it, it just doesn't work from the very beginning. And when you try to build a culture on it, when you tried to build institutions and court decisions on it, you, you really be, get into a philosophically place that it, it just becomes insane. <laughs> Keller states, if you insist that no one can determine which beliefs are right and wrong, why should we believe what you're saying? Do you hear that? Do you hear the, the backwards thinking of it, how it just doesn't work logically? If you insist that no one can determine which beliefs are right and wrong, then why should we believe what you're saying? If you say there's no objective truth, you've just made an objective claim of truth. So, I mean, we can talk about this on and on and on in terms of logic and debates. But, but we just need to understand the basic reality of, of what the church, the, the historic orthodox confessing church that's holding on to the Bible, what we increasingly look like to the world. What we increasingly look like to your barista, what we increasingly look like to your fellow school teachers. Um, we look arrogant in these cases. We look arrogant. We look bigoted. We look unfairly judgmental. Um, I, and what we want to do is be prepared to, to receive that, to brace ourselves for that, and to be able to respond with grace, to be able to respond with wisdom. But e even talking about that, I just I, I want to try to, this morning, encourage you to recognize that wherever you are in this question of relativism or plurality, I, I, I want you to leave here knowing that the Bible really really claims exclusive truth. The Bible really, really does claim 
that Jesus is who he says and that he is the way to God exclusively. And, and I, I want us to at least walk out knowing if I'm going to follow this God of this Bible, this is what he's calling me to believe. This is what he's calling me to trust in. So really what I want to talk about today are a few different questions. And, and, and the first is, what does God teach about himself regarding salvation? What does God teach about Jesus regarding salvation? Is Christianity really claiming that Jesus and faith in him is really the only way? We're going to look at that and look at a couple of other things. But I'm realizing before I go any further, I have completely forgotten to pray. And I just need to pray again with you guys. So would you pray with me? Lord, I need help. Please help me, God, to serve your people this morning. Please have great mercy on me, Lord. In my particular limitations this week, um, I pray, Lord, you would rescue all of us in this room. Rescue us, Lord God, through your word, from wrong thinking about you, from wrong thinking about ourselves and our world. Lord, you'd, you'd, you'd do a rescuing job for me right now as I sit in this pulpit. You'd help me, Lord God, to be humble and faithful to you and to trust you above all things that I might preach your word with, with honor and really serve people today and not serve myself. And I pray, God, that you would be pleased to glorify yourself among us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, what does God teach about salvation? What does the gospel tell us about salvation? Because this, this question really gets to the heart of what our culture finds offensive about Christianity. In chapter 10 of Romans, we look at the following. I'm going to start with a gospel passage in verse 9, 12 through 13. Verse 9 and 12 and 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does the gospel teach about salvation? What is it that our world does and will find so offensive about Christianity? Well, first, salvation comes through faith in the gospel of Christ. Salvation comes through faith in the gospel of Christ. In verse 9, it's the Lord Jesus who's to, believed in, who's to be believed in. It's his resurrection, implying he died for our sins that we're to put our hope in. It's the specific person of Jesus, the specific saving event of his death and resurrection for our sins that we are to trust in to receive God's salvation. And then verses 12, 13, Paul stressing the freeness of that gift to all people everywhere, Jew, Gentile, black, white, man, woman by extension, rich, poor, anyone, wherever they are, when they call out to God for it. Okay, so far, this, this sounds like happy good news, right? Which, which people should generally be fine. Wow, look, Jesus saves people. No one's going to be offended if you walk in and say, Jesus loves you and wants to save you. As long as it's not exclusive, though, as long as it's not mandatory, as long as it's able to sit alongside with Buddhists, good news or Islam's good news or atheistic good news that everything's going to be fine when you die, you just end. 
But let's look at the next few verses, 14 through 15. Right after explaining the gospel, these are some of the most important verses for our hearts in this culture right now. Here's what Paul says. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent, as it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? And this brings us to our next answer of why Christianity is, traditional Christianity is so offensive to our world. B, the New Testament offers us no other path to salvation. The New Testament offers us no other path to salvation. Paul is asking a very important question. Earlier in the passage, people need to call on Jesus to be saved. And then he says, and don't they then need to know about him? How will they know if no one tells them? How will someone tell them unless that person is sent to tell them? The implications here are sobering for all of us. They should shake us and they're deeply offensive to the world that doesn't know Christ. It, it appears that Paul is saying that he is aware of no other way for anyone to be saved except through hearing and believing the good news about Jesus. And it's this idea which makes Christianity so offensive and arrogant and judgmental to so many in our culture. And listen, I can relate to being offended. I can relate to this like hard news of this. I, I want salvation to be automatic. I want people to have it no matter whether they hear or don't hear. No matter what they do or don't do. I, I can relate to someone who feels that the Christian view that there's only one way to God and it's through faith in Jesus Christ is arrogant and judgmental. I, I get it. I can relate to it. And I think that the older I get and the more I recognize how important it is that we respect each other's faith and, and we try to live at peace with each other and not shoot each other about this and not have wars about this, which I think it's all really good stuff and I think this world should be that way, the more I can feel like also te- as well, man, what's the big deal? Like this, is, this feels kind of harsh from God. Like, only one way to be saved. You have to hear the message of the gospel, receive the message. It, it, it can feel hard. But, but I, I think I can relate to all that most of all because I simply know so little about the true holiness of God, the true character of God. And I know so little about my predicament before God. That, that's what I think God would tell me about why I, I'm tempted to feel like the Christian message is arrogant, why I'm tempted to feel like he's too harsh. I think it's because I don't really understand the depth of God's holiness and the depth of my sin and its offense to him. So let's consider the question, though. Does God's gospel reveal that he is unjust, that he's a harsh, cruel, unfair God? What does the fact that the Bible proclaims no other plan for salvation except through faith in the gospel tell us about God? Does it tell us that he's arrogant and judgmental, that he's narrow-minded and unfair in treating mankind this way? Well, let's look at another passage in Romans chapter 3. We'll have all this stuff up there, I believe. Here, Paul has been making the case that God is just. And will bring a day of judgment, he says, in which God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And where he will render to each person according to their works. So Paul is saying there is going to come a day when God is going to sit at a literal or figurative bench 
in a sense, and he is going to judge you. He is going to judge me. He is going to judge everyone in the world. And everyone will, will be rendered to according to their works. Here's Paul's summation of mankind's condition as we prepare for that judgment. Verses 9 through 12. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So our first answer from the word of God is that God is not unjust in his gospel because man is not righteous. God is not unfair to man because God is letting us know that we don't deserve a righteous judgment upon our lives. This is really at the root of our opposition, the world's opposition to the gospel message. The gospel mission of a savior dying a horrible death for our sins The gospel message of a person needing to die a horrible death for my sins presupposes our true condition is one of horrible sinfulness. That none of us are righteous. That none of us deserve salvation because of our rejection of God. Notice at the top of the list, by the way, of these issues that Paul's talking about that mark us is this. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. That's the biggest problem for us. We don't seek for God. It doesn't start with our stealing from each other, our jealousy or selfishness towards each other. It starts with this. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside from God. I don't think a typically morally minded person today would begin with the list of sins like Paul begins with the list of sins. I think he'd begin with Western greed, with Western genocide or colonialism, places like uh, Vietnam or uh, worse things in defer or terrorism or the, the abuse of the underprivileged, the abuse of women. And those are horrible things that God hates. But the Bible sees those things as the result of something else. The Bible sees all the sins we commit individually, personally, and societally, institutionally against each other, against our husbands and wives, against our kids, against our parents, against our co-workers, against our other nations, from nation to nation. He sees all of that rooted in something else. They are rooted in our refusal to honor and thank and glorify and love the most important being in the universe who deserves our loyalty. And that's God himself. I've tried to use this analogy before. It's so, I don't think it's quite um, up to the par, but I'm going to try to explain it this way. Um, Think of a teenager who by all appearances horizontally was kind and generous to his friends, but who literally, literally, Ignored his father and mother. Each day he's eating their food, wearing their clothes, sleeping in their house, using their hard-earned property, their TV, their car, their microwave, their computer, spending whatever he wants and whatever he wants on their credit card, expects them to pay the bill each month. All the while, he literally denies they even exist. He will not acknowledge their existence. He refuses their questions, their calls. He ignores their pleas for friendship. He denies obedience to their reasonable requests. Now, let's include the idea that he tells others his parents don't exist, (laughs) that all these blessings from his parents actually belong to him, that he deserves them. Let's also say that he often wastes and abuses what his parents give him in front of their faces on a regular basis. You'd think, what a sad, horrible, selfish person, right? On, On the tiniest scale, like the most minuscule scale, this parallels what we've done with God. 
we, we have to add things like we don't just ignore the parents, but when they come down to try to talk to us, eventually we kick them out of the house. And if they keep coming back, eventually we kill them. <laughs> That's really on, more on par with what mankind has done with God. Certainly what we did with him when he came in the person of his son. Apart from God's own work in our hearts, we don't just ignore God. We're not just indifferent to him. We want to put him out of existence. This is why the Bible tells us the worst thing that happened to you and I happened a long time ago in a place called Eden. In Eden, the Bible tells us that our first parents, from whom we all spiritually descend and whom was all our potential, they brought this condition of sin to us all. They, they did this not firstly by mistreating one another. Adam and Eve were cool with each other. They treated each other fine. They started by mistreating God. They decided they wanted to be able to make their own decisions about right and wrong in a world that belonged to someone else. They started by making, deciding that they wanted to make their own decision about right and wrong in a world that belonged to someone else. They used the life that they received from an almighty, loving, all-powerful God to tell him that he had no right to rule them. We can feel that we're moral because we treat everyone well, but if we deny God and the honor and love and respect he deserves, the one who created us, the author of all things, the author of our lives, we've committed the worst sin we can commit because he's the person who matters more than any other person in the whole universe, our creator. Perfectly loving, holy, gives us all things, sustains literally every moment of your existence, every molecule in your body. He's writing the check on it and keeping it going this very moment. And he's the only one who has the right to tell any of us what our existence is for. And ever since the garden, ever since that terrible day when Eve and Adam rejected God, Paul says we too have been denying and ignoring God. And this isn't out of innocent ignorance. Deep in the heart of mankind is what the Bible would, would really portray as a willing suppression. The Bible would really portray this as a willing suppression about the truth of God. Even though, as Paul says in Romans 1, everyone can see God's eternal power. Everyone can see his divine nature through all that he has made. Even though it is plain to us to see, deep down inside, we suppress it. And he says, we suppress the truth about God, he says, in unrighteousness. We don't want to acknowledge that we're created. We don't want to acknowledge that we belong ultimately to somebody else. And from that decision to deny God, to deny his authority over our lives, his right to tell us, what we should do with, for instance, our bodies, what we should do with sexuality, denying him and his right flows every other sin against one another. And so as Paul talks about what's wrong with us in Romans 3, he moves from what's wrong with us vertically with God to what's wrong with us with each other. He says their throats are an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths run ruin and misery. 
The way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is where man eventually ends up without God's Holy Spirit's work. And this is where we all started from before the Holy Spirit came into our lives and rescued us. Maybe we didn't murder people with knives, but we know what it is to hate. We know what it is to hate. We know what it is to try to one-up each other. We know what it is to be selfish. And now we see these sins, lying, selfishness, hatred, malice. They find expression in our words and actions against each other. But it's the breakdown happened vertically. It happens with God. And so God is saying, I'm not unjust. To proclaim faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. Because if by justice, you actually don't deserve me. By right deserts, you don't deserve my salvation. You don't deserve my mercy. That's the whole point. I am perfect, holy, and loving. I rightly deserve your love and worship and your loyalty. But instead of loving me as right, we have used and you have used and abused me. So by justice, the Bible argues God owes us nothing. God owes this world, mankind, nothing. And there's another fast to this question that's taken up in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Do we have that verse? It's so it's kind of hard to see these. Is it? Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll try to be slower on the on the verses and we'll we'll try to figure out what the right balance is with these lights for for next time. Well, verse 19 of this chapter in Romans three, where we are, it's, Paul says this, whatever God's law says. It speaks to people who are under it so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. What Paul is trying to say here is God is not unjust because his judgments are perfect. Paul says that on the day of judgment that's coming, every mouth will be shut. The mouth will be shut. What that means is it's this imagery of courtroom. It means the defendant, they hear what is being said to them and they literally cannot respond except to say, you're right. I, <laughs> we will have two options on that day. We will either say, God, thank you for your mercy. Or we will say, oh, Lord, I'm doomed because you're right about me. Those will really be the two options we're going to have. His judgment will be perfect. Listen, God will weigh all circumstances. He will weigh all causes. He will, he will push away all mitigating factors. He will weigh everything, and what he pronounces will be obviously and perfectly fair. One of the most interesting passages about, gives us a peek into that day is in Matthew 11. Jesus says this about the day of judgment. Listen to what Jesus says there. He says, it says this, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So he's saying to these cities he's preaching in and doing miracles in, he's saying, you guys are in huge trouble. Because if I'd done in these cities long ago... By the way, these are cities God had judged and had passed into that had passed away. If I had done these 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 miracles in these cities, those people would have repented. So he's he's warning these present cities he's preaching to that he knows what the people long ago, dead long ago, in those ancient cities would have done had he worked his miracles among them. We're not told exactly what that will mean on the final day of judgment. That that 
But what we do know is that these cities were still, these ancient cities, Jesus is saying, would have done better with him than the present cities that he's preaching to. We do know that they were unrighteous cities that God judged. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and says it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for some of these cities, Capernaum, that he's preaching in. He, the Bible says God devastated Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. And yet he's saying, on the day of judgment, I'm going to think about the fact that if I had come to Sodom and Gomorrah and preached to them what I'm preaching to you, they would have repented. They would have turned to me. That's how bad you are, Capernaum. <laughs> That's what Jesus is trying to say. So we need to be humble when we're asked things like, or when we ask things like, what about those who never hear the gospel? There are things that God knows that we don't know that will matter on that day. It, it can be a reasonable question. I don't know everything about this judgment, but I know it will be fair. And I, and I think sometimes when I'm asking those questions, like, what about those who never hear, who've never heard the gospel? What's underneath, what's underneath that is rising this sense that, well, God wouldn't be fair to condemn people without telling them the gospel first. That's what's underneath that. Is God wouldn't be fair to condemn people without t- t- telling them the gospels first. But folks, this is what's so offensive. That's not true. That's not true. God doesn't owe man anything. Man owes God everything. Whoever is condemned by God is not condemned because God didn't want them. They're not condemned because God didn't preach the gospel to them. They're condemned because they, whether they're conscious of it or not, have truly rejected God. They don't want him. And this brings us to our next answer. God is not unjust because he wants all people to be saved. Here's another reason why God is not unjust. Moving along in Romans 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I'm going to slow that down because you can't see it very well. Moving along in Romans 3, verse 20. By works of the law, by obeying God, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will be able to cut it that way. No human being will have a perfect record in God's sight. Since through the law, since knowing what God's law is, we just start to learn about our sin more and more. That's what Paul's saying here. When you see the word law, don't think like rules and regulations, like get circumcised or make sure that you spend three days outside the camp, blah, blah, blah. Think about the summation of the law, to love God. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. To love God with all our heart. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. Just use that law. Paul is telling us here that God knows the serious predicament we're in. That none of us can escape condemnation by saying, I do love you, God, the way I'm supposed to. And I do love my brothers and sisters and my neighbors the way I'm supposed to. There's no way we're going to cut it that way. Because we don't. But he's provided this other way. The righteousness of God, he says, will be given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the next verses say, verses 21 through 22, because it's hard to see them. I'm trying to unpack them a little bit but i I should just say then this is what he says the righteousness of god has been manifest that's made known revealed apart from the law apart from keeping the law 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a lot of information. But just to talk about this for a second, God's way, knowing that we do not and cannot keep the law, is to give us a righteousness, a righteous standing before him that's not our own. And he does this, verse 25, it says, through propitiation. This is an awkward-sounding word, but it's a great word to know what it means. It's in the Bible. It's an old word. It's a great word to mean, to know what it means. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath and turns it away. Propitiation is a, like it's an animal sacrifice picture from the Old Testament. And it's just, it's something that satisfies God's anger, his righteous just anger at sin, and turns it away, casts it away. And that's a reference to Jesus. That's what Jesus does. God's holy anger against our sin is exhausted on Jesus as he hangs on the cross. God did that because he loves us, right? He, he didn't, God doesn't hate the, hate the world, but Jesus gets in his way and says, let me stop you from hating the world. No, God's got a big problem. He loves the world and he hates the world. He loves the world. He wants to have mercy on the world. He knows the world is full of his image bearers who need to be rescued. But he hates sin. He hates it. He must judge it. And he solved this predicament by, instead of condemning us as he could, he condemned his very own person. He condemned himself in his son, his innocent, holy, blameless son. And now he declares us forgiven. He declares us not guilty. He declares us righteous when we put faith in that gift. And he wants everyone to receive this gift, whether they do or not. You know, we're, we're reformed. That means that we believe that God makes, ultimately, he saves from beginning to end. And so he, he chooses to grab you and I out of the mire. And for some reason, in his sovereignty, he doesn't turn everyone's heart to him. He turns our hearts to him, but other people... Their hearts, he will not turn to him. And that, again, can sound cruel and harsh if we think they deserve it. But they don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. And here's another aspect of, of God's choice that's really important to keep in mind. Even though God doesn't, this is a mystery, but it's a really crucial mystery. Even though God doesn't turn everyone's heart towards him, he wants everyone's heart to be turned towards him. I don't know how to solve that. Even though God doesn't turn everyone's heart back towards him, he wants everyone's heart to come back to him. Remember that we serve a savior that wept over Jerusalem. He wept over a city that completely rejected him and not just rejected him, they murdered him. And he said to those people, how long I've wanted to gather you into my arms as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not have it. Therefore, your house will be left to you desolate. Therefore, 
I'm out of here because you rejected me. First Timothy 2 says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. First Peter 3 tells us that the day of judgment is waiting a long time because God is waiting for all to repent and more and more turn to him. And you just see the, the, the sobriety we're, we're coming. I mean, I, I'm sober just going over this again. I, people need to hear the gospel. Our neighbors and coworkers, our children, our parents, our estranged brothers and sisters, they need the gospel. And God has given it to us to give to them. And many of them will want nothing to do with it. And God will want them to want it. (laughs) But they won't want it. But it's the only way the Bible tells us that they can be saved. And we've got it. Jesus said, go into all the world. And make disciples of all nations. He wants the whole world getting this. And he told that to the disciples. But they're dead. And the job's not done. So he's left it to the church. He's left it to us to continue. And we'll talk more in the coming weeks about How do we do this? But folks, people's biggest problem around us as we move into this chapter on sexual morality, it's not that they're committing adultery. It's not that they're looking at pornography. It's not that men are marrying men or women are marrying women. That's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is that their relationship with God is dead. It's gone. And their adultery and their prostitution and their enslavement to pornography and their embrace of same-sex relationships, it is just an expression of that deadness being lived out in their lives as their hearts become harder and harder and harder. And you know what? There's a real window for us in that because even though we have Christ... We also battle with hard hearts, right? So we can empathize with them. We can sympathize with them. We don't have to accept what they're doing as right and say, this is great. Keep doing it. No, that would be continuing to send them along their happy way to hell. But we also have an opportunity to step back from any kind of self-righteous attitude and arrogance and say, You sicko. You weirdo. No, because apart from God's grace, I'm going to be a sicko. In some manner. So I just want to appeal to you guys. I want to appeal to myself as we move into this series on, well, this this sort of sub area of sexual morality. We're going to be hitting on things that are relevant to everybody we know. Everybody around us.
like this is just one area where the differences, the the trench between the church and the world is just so obvious and wide and getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And we've got a tremendous challenge. We've got to say to a world that's calling us bigots and haters, we're not bigots, we're not haters, we, we love you. We've got to be able to demonstrate that and suffer through that to be used by God. To bring some of our neighbors and brothers and sisters into the kingdom of God where, where they will find that though they used to be entrapped by these things that the world thinks are great, they're going to start to see, oh my gosh, God hates these things. And they're going to start to see, oh my gosh, God's creating new desires in me. God is creating a new person in me. God is setting me free from these chains. And they're going to say, oh my goodness, I'm brand new and I'm free. And then they're going to start to struggle with these things again. And we're going to be able to go back to 1 Corinthians 6 that we were just in and we're able to say to them and to each other, no, 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 no. Don't get trapped in there again. You're new. You're new. You're free. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were set apart. By God's grace, you can do this. You can keep walking. We all can. We all need to be reminded again and again and again. We all struggle. We all stumble. We all need to get back up and get into that race. And we can because we're new, because we're forgiven, because we're justified. And these refugees of sexual liberation are going to find out that they've been starving for a God they hated. And now they're finding him so satisfying. So let's go into this next season and the next few weeks with humble hearts, with, with discerning hearts, with courageous hearts, and, and learn and see how God wants us to, to be used to offer his love and his gospel to people who, to some degrees, will hate it <laughs> and will call it bigotry. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your truth doesn't change And we thank you even more that your truth is not just unchanging. It's living. It doesn't just speak to us. It works in us. Your truth, Lord, doesn't just proclaim what is right. It makes what is wrong right again. Your word is able to save. Your word is able to create light out of darkness, holiness out of sin, healing out of death, freedom out of bondage. And Lord, I pray that all of us today, Lord God, because we were all still on this journey of moving away from sin and into goodness, that we would all, Lord God, be met by your spirit cleaning us today, helping us today. Lord God, don't just let this be a word preached, but let your word work in our hearts to bring grace and bring healing and bring mercy. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen.